Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Gina Gale Fletcher, Associate Professor at Indiana University Bloomington Maurer School of Law. We'll be discussing her new article, Engineered Credit Default Swaps, Innovative or Manipulative, which is forthcoming in the NYU Law Review. I'll include a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Gina Gell, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. Your paper is about a phenomenon that we've recently seen in the credit default swap or CDS market. I wondered if before we get into the meat and bones of the paper, though, if you could give our listeners just a short background of what CDS is, how it works, uh, what the market for it is, and maybe how it's governed or regulated. Sure. Credit default swaps are insurance-like financial instruments that help two parties transfer the risk of an issuer's default. Let me break down those different parts to that statement. So with a credit default swap, you have one party that's known as the credit protection buyer uh, who pays premiums to their counterparty who is known as the protection seller. And in exchange for these premium payments, the protection seller agrees to compensate the buyer in the event that the issuer whose debt is underlying the instrument in the event that that issuer defaults or misses an upcoming interest payment on an outstanding debt. And so in that way, it helps the protection buyer to kind of protect themselves against any losses in case they are a bondholder, for example, for that underlying debt. The market for it is smaller than it was pre-2008, but it is still quite a significant market. Approximately about $10 trillion of credit default swaps are outstanding um, in the financial markets. The market, however, is governed or is dominated um, to some extent by speculators, people who do not have any outstanding exposure to the debt that's underlying the instrument. And that has contributed to a lot of the size of the market. And the market is also kind of light touch regulated, I think is one way to put that. So pre-2008, the market was actually very unregulated. Uh, A lot of credit default swaps were traded over the counter. And that was seen by many to be an impetus for or a contributor to the 2008 crisis. And now there have been moves towards regulating credit default swaps, but they are still mostly under the governance of the International Swaps Dealers Association, or ISDA. And ISDA is the one that writes the master agreement. And ISDA is kind of the unofficial regulator of that space. But otherwise, credit default swaps are still uh, largely unregulated, um, except, of course, for commodities and securities laws that apply to all financial instruments. So there's two groups of folks who might be interested in buying CDS. One is the more vanilla example of I'm a bondholder and I want to hedge my risk that the bonds that I own don't perform so I can go out and buy this protection. Uh, On the other side, there are folks who don't have any exposure directly to the bonds. They don't own the bonds. They do see these instruments as a potential speculation tool, and they might be able to earn a profit even if they don't have anything to hedge. Your paper is focused more, I think, on the latter group and and the concept of engineered CDS. Could you walk us through what engineered CDS is? 
is and maybe some examples or, or maybe a topology of what you see and how this phenomenon has happened? So you're entirely right. In the paper, I do primarily focus on those traders that are using credit default swaps to speculate. And what I broadly group as engineering of credit default swaps is traders, whether they be the protection buyer or the protection seller, negotiating with the issuer whose debt is underlying the credit default swap, uh, that they're negotiating with them so that they can have the outcome that would be most profitable for their position. So for example, in the paper, I, I classify these strategies in three different ways. So the one that is most problematic and has gotten the most attention recently is what I refer to as the manufactured default. And with a manufactured default, you have a credit protection buyer who offers cheap financing to the issuer. And in exchange, the issuer agrees to default on an upcoming debt payment. And so they might have an interest payment that's coming due, and they agree not to pay that interest payment so that this would trigger a payment under the credit default swap terms to the protection buyer. Then the other two strategies I talk about are uh, negating default and avoiding default. And with both of those strategies, you have the credit protection seller, on the other hand, the party who is insuring the debt, so to speak, offering financing to the um, issuer to get the issuer to not default. And so I'd like to break that down just a little bit. So with negating default, the credit protection seller is working with the issuer so that the issuer now receives cheap financing and the issuer uses that financing to restructure their debt so the debt is now held by a subsidiary. That way, the issuer no longer has any meaningful outstanding debts and can't default. This benefits the seller because the seller is still able to collect the premiums over the term of the CDS contract, but is not really at any risk on needing to pay out. Uh, with avoiding default, it's a little different because really what's going on here is that the issuer receives a short-term loan to help stave off default during the, the life of the contract. So, for example, the issuer might be looking at a default that might happen in the next four weeks to two months or something along those lines. And then the protection seller might just offer them just enough financing to get them across the finish line so that the protection seller's payment obligations are not triggered. So those are the three different ways in which I classify engineered credit default swaps in the paper. So we have the counterparties for a CDS transaction. We have the protection buyer and the protection seller. An engineered CDS is what happens when one of those sides intervenes in the life or the, the credit profile of the target company, uh, as opposed to just letting the company rise and fall or the, the debt perform or not as it otherwise naturally would. What have been the reactions of some of the losing parties, people on the losing sides of these engineered transactions? Do they just accept that that's a, a fair reading of the contract or have they, they sued or have they, they called for regulation or otherwise called foul? Uh, so they've generally called foul if they're on the losing side, right? Because they're for some of these parties uh, that are on the losing side, it seems to them to be that this is an unfair interpretation or use of the CDS contract. So uh, one of the more prominent cases that happened recently involved Hubnavian home builders working with the credit protection buyer actually to manufacture a default. And the parties that would be on the losing end of that actually sued Hubnavian, the issuer, the, the debt issuer, and also sued the credit protection buyer, uh, which was a subsidiary of Blackstone for, and you know, uh, putting together this 
transaction. And the case eventually settled, so we don't know what would have happened there. But, you know, in that case, uh, the losing party did indeed sue. Uh, We have another example with Radio Shack. Radio Shack was experienced what I term in the paper to be avoiding defaults. There, the protection buyers complained to ISDA, to the ISDA Determinations Committee, who gets to decide whether or not a default has occurred. And they complained to them saying that the loan, the last minute loan that Radio Shack received was actually manipulative in some way. And the ISDA Determination Committee disagreed, saying that this was not in violation of the ISDA Master Agreement for the CDS contract. So they have not been accepting it. They have been complaining, crying foul. And indeed, some of their complaints have reached the ears of regulators. And specifically, the CFTC, the SEC have made sweeping statements that this constitutes market manipulation and that this is against what should be occurring in the market in some way. So I think that gets to the really big question of the paper, and it's it's there in the the subtitle as well. Maybe some of the losing parties in these transactions view this as market manipulation, and maybe some of the regulators do too, but is it market manipulation, or how should we be thinking about that question? So in the paper, that is one of the things that did motivate me to think through this paper um, in a meaningful way, because there were a lot of, you know, there was a lot of noise on either side saying this was manipulation, this was not manipulation. And I thought that that was a a useful thing to really consider, especially because manipulation does get batted around a lot sometimes when we don't like what's going on in the market. And so in the paper, I discussed the consequences of these transactions for different parties, uh, the issuer, for the countless CDS counterparties, and then for third parties who aren't involved in the market at all. And one of the things I conclude is that the transaction does indeed distort the market. It imposes certain externalities on third parties. But from a legal standpoint, unfortunately, it doesn't constitute market manipulation. And so the reason I came to this was through looking, obviously, at what courts and the regulators have routinely held to be manipulative from a legal standpoint. And there were primarily three bases that one could raise to say that these engineered transactions constituted market manipulation. One could argue that it was a species of fraud. And there, I question whether fraud really gets us anywhere because the fact of it is that with these engineered transactions, the parties typically disclose all the required information once they've come to some kind of agreement about what's going on. So with the Hapnanian example, again, to go back there, they issued an 8K to let the world know that they were going to be engaging in this transaction. And they let the world know as well what the condition for receiving this financing was, that they were going to default on an upcoming debt payment, and they were going to do so voluntarily. And so fraud doesn't work for us there because there's no material misstatement misrepresentation. And so with the parties disclosing, fraud doesn't get us very far. The other option would possibly be price artificiality. But with price artificiality, courts have typically been reluctant to say that a price is artificial if you don't have something a bit more nefarious going on. So if we're not abusing market power in order to change the price or force others to transact with us such that we can set the price in the market. We're doing something in in that way that, as the courts would say, interferes with the natural forces of supply and demand. 
if we're not doing something along those lines, then price artificiality is quite difficult to prove. That leaves us with a third possible basis for saying that engineered transactions are manipulative, and that would be classifying them as what's known as open market manipulation. Uh, Open market manipulation is the concept that conduct can be manipulative in the market, even if the conduct is per se legitimate. So you can manipulate the market by using conduct that would be okay in other instances. The key to open market manipulation is proving that the trader, the alleged manipulator here, had the intent to manipulate the market at the time that they engaged in the transaction. And that intent requirement would be quite difficult, I think, for the regulators or for anyone to prove in these instances, because in engaging in these transactions, the uh, traders don't necessarily have the intent to manipulate. I mean, minus, you know, some kind of smoking gun evidence that they did. And what's more, in some jurisdictions, if you have a legitimate reason for engaging in the transaction, that provides you with a defense against liability in the cases of open market manipulation. So going through those bases, I found that, you know, although engineered transactions do indeed distort the market price or distort the market in some way, they don't constitute market manipulation from a legal standpoint. And I think that that is actually a problem in terms of the law's ability to cabin these types of transactions in a meaningful way. Given that these transactions don't cross over the line into market manipulation, at least under current law and regulation, there is the reality, though, that they probably do upset the equilibrium of the CDS market. The the expectation of, of CDS is that it provides that insurance tool for people who need to buy protection. Even for speculators, it provides a tool to make a bet on the direction uh, of debt. What implications does engineered CDS have for the parties? Presumably, prior expectation of how CDS works provided the opportunity for some folks to make these profitable trades. And if those trades become more common that might have some consequences for issuers, for counterparties of CDS, for third parties, or for the CDS and securities market generally. What do you see coming down the pike there if this becomes more widespread? I think that that's really driving towards what a larger or long-term problem would be if we allowed these types of transactions to continue, is that primarily it would make the credit default swaps market less viable, right? Because Given that almost no one would want to be on one side of this or the other, this would potentially limit the number of traders who would be willing to participate in this market. And it would limit it to those traders who would be okay with being party to one of these transactions, possibly because they're going to try and engineer it themselves, or they think, or they are up for, you know, out engineering their other counterparty. And so then I think this will decrease liquidity in the credit default swaps market. I think it'll have greater spillover effects as well in that it'll probably decrease the liquidity of the bond market as well. A lot of traders, investors will utilize the CDS markets as a way to hedge risk that they've taken on in the bond markets. And if CDS are no longer available as a way to hedge or as a way to lower transaction costs, meaningfully reduce the risks that they've taken on in other segments of the market, then they're going to also reduce their participation in the bond markets, for example, because of their inability to use the credit default swaps market in a meaningful way. And so I think that engineered transactions do end up having greater impact than just, you know, whether or not on this one-off deal, we have a credit default, you know, a protection buyer and a protection seller hashing it out because uh, they tried to get 
an issuer to default. Uh, I think longer term, thinking about it in this way, traders might be less willing to become involved in the CDS market, which would decrease the liquidity of the market, would decrease the ability of the markets to have that kind of market-based measure that CDS provide of the creditworthiness of an issuer. So these are the broader implications that I think that we should be concerned about. And just even more broadly for the, you know, the securities market and the CDS market, we're already kind of battling this concept that the markets are unfair or they're rigged, you know, they're only there for the profitability of large, sophisticated parties and that ordinary people who are using the markets in a certain way can't actually profit. And I think that this would contribute to that narrative in a detrimental way. Um, And so I think kind of reining these in in a meaningful way would be useful. I wonder how how we would go about reining in uh, some of these transactions. And the topology you provide, there's a lot of variety. And we can imagine that clever financial engineers will think of new ways to structure these transactions. How can we go about limiting or prohibiting or policing these sorts of transactions? Is it too indeterminate in a way to, to police the, the idea that you can't engage in engineered CDS? And if it is something that we have the ability to regulate, is that through public enforcement or private governance contract, something that ISDA might do or uh, something that the, the SEC is, or CFTC are, are taking the lead on? Sure. So I think we actually have a few options here. So I would be remiss not to say that in September of this year, as of September 2019, ISDA did issue and adopt uh, amendments to the master agreement to specifically deal with manufactured defaults. So we have some a bit of direction from ISDA a few years later uh, than from when the first occurrences of this popped up. But ISDA has taken some steps. And I think the way in which ISDA has structured its response Bonds to manufactured defaults is actually useful because instead of creating a bright line rule that says, you know, this is what would constitute a manufactured default, for ISDA, they call it a narrowly tailored credit event. You know, instead of saying, well, this is what would constitute a manufactured default, they kind of give leeway to the determination committee who does decide whether or not something constitutes a default or a credit event under the master agreement. They give leeway to the determination committee to decide whether or not a certain event is a credit event under the master agreement and should trigger payoff under the credit default swap. And there, they are asking the determination committee to look at whether or not there's a causal link between the default, the issuer's default, and their actual financial condition. And that's kind of a broader scope than what is the normally takes to the interpretation of the master agreement and to how it normally applies the master agreement. And I think that that's a good starting position uh, if we are going to use the route of contract or the is the master agreement to kind of get at this. But I do think that there is still a role for the regulators, for lawmakers, here, specifically because the ISDA approach does not actually address the other forms of engineered transactions, uh, specifically avoiding default or negating default. So those transactions are still allowed under the terms of the contract, which I think is problematic for different reasons. And so there is a role for our regulators to also think through how the anti-manipulation framework could be expanded to address transactions, like engineered CDS transactions, that 
utilize certain financial instruments in interesting ways that distort the market, right, that undermine the market, they distort pricing, they distort market expectations, as we talked about earlier, but possibly don't fit what we traditionally think of as manipulation. So private governance here will get us some of the way, but I do not believe that private governance will get us the entirety of the way. And that's because ISDA, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a trade organization. It's there for its members. And I think that ISDA will do what is, you know, what's necessary to keep the market alive, but just what's necessary. It's not thinking about the broader financial markets and the broader scope and impact of its changes to the rest of the market. And so there, I think there is a role for regulators to step in to do something there. Gina Gill, what takeaways would you like our listeners uh, to have from this paper, whether they're uh, academics or they are market participants or or regulators? And what open questions uh, do you still see on this topic? Sure. So one open question has to do with just, uh, you know, what we were just talking about with limiting or prohibiting these transactions or how we do that. And so an open question here would be, can we meaningfully expand the securities and commodities laws to get to these types of transactions? And what would that meaningful expansion look like? The other open question, I think, is will the markets now turn to the forms of engineered transactions that are not addressed through the ISDA amendment? So, you know, now that avoiding and negating default are okay, will we see a rise in the creativity that can accompany these types of transactions? Will there be a rise in their occurrence? And I I think that only time will tell us whether or not these will become new considerations for us. And then the third and final takeaway I would say is that this is really an area that we should pay attention to, especially as issuers themselves are now becoming more involved in this from their own standpoint. So, for example, Sears, uh, which was when, when Sears was facing imminent bankruptcy, and Sears now, um, you know, definitely in bankruptcy. Uh, One of the things that Sears did was it monetized an old bond that it had as a way for its protection sellers. It auctioned off this old bond it had to protection sellers who would then be able to use it to value or to actually protection sellers and buyers. It was open to everyone uh, who would then be able to use it as a way to value any payoff from CDS is being triggered on their debt. And, you know, issuers are getting into this more and more now. And it's also causing issues for banks. Uh, Goldman Sachs was recently sued by an issuer who thought that the way in which Goldman Sachs structured certain things made the issuer more susceptible to hedge funds that would bet against it through credit default swaps. And this is something that I think is going to be coming up more and more in different ways, right? In this paper, I talked just about the engineered transactions, specifically from the point of view of the CDS counterparties. But I think that with a lot of what's going on in this space now, we should be more in tune as well with how other actors can monetize or weaponize these instruments in a way that undermines the market and potentially creates outsized risks within the financial system. Our guest today has been Gina Gell-Fletcher, Associate Professor at the Indiana University Bloomington Maurer School of Law. We've discussed her article, Engineered Credit Default Swaps, Innovative or Manipulative, which is forthcoming in the NYU Law Review. I'll link the article in the show notes for today's episode. Gina Gell, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It was great to be here.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.